I want to start with a poem by uh, Langston Hughes, African-American poet living in uh, New York City in the 1920s. Writes this about the city. In the morning, the city spreads its wings, making a song in stone that sings. In the evening, goes to bed, hanging lights above its head. In 597 BC, people who should be waking up in Jerusalem are, through no cause of their own, suddenly going to be waking up in Babylon, the wrong city. And the prophet Jeremiah will write a letter from Jerusalem to Babylon giving them instructions for this new and unwelcome situation. We find that letter in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. Let's turn there. You're going to see what Jeremiah tells them to do is, and it shouldn't be any surprise by now, build, right? Page 638 of the Pew Bible. And go ahead and remain seating, seated because I'd like to read this uh, text for us this morning. I'm going to read Jeremiah 29 down to verses, uh, verse 1 down to verse 14. And when I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're hearing God's holy word. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after the king Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. Now they tell us about the courier. The, the letter was sent by the hand of uh, Elisha, son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The letter said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. They're talking about going back to Jerusalem soon. Uh, verse 10, for thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then, when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes 
and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. So you might leave the book open. We'll look at this together. Let me start with this. In many ways, life is exile. I don't know if you've experienced that yet. Life is exile. What the Lord is saying through Jeremiah to these exiles in Babylon is, this is your life now. 70 years you're going to be here. Actually, the exile historically, depends on how you count it, but it was, was literally like 60 years from not 597 B.C. to 538 B.C. So why is he saying 70 years? Because that's a lifetime. It's, it's more than a lifetime. We read in Psalm 90, verse 10, the days of our years are three score years and 10. That's 70. Three score years and 10. So he's saying, don't be looking over your shoulder thinking you're going to head back. This is your future. This is your life right now, this state of exile. And for many of us, life is exile. Exile is loss. It was for them. They were torn from their home. They lose their home. They're stripped of all that is familiar. They've lost all that, was, uh, that held them secure in life, all the signs of God's presence, the, the history of Israel, the land, the temple, all gone, all lost. And as I said to you before, whenever there's loss, there's grief, and whenever there's grief, there's anger. And we get a picture of this bubbling up in a horrible way in Psalm 137, where we read, the psalmist says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. This is this community of exiles. O daughter Babylon, they say, you devastator. Happy shall be they who pay you back what you've done to us. They're looking for revenge. Happy they, shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. Wow. This is a toxic anger that's come from this experience of loss. It's real. It's raw. Now, uh, life exposes us to a constant stream of loss and disappointment. Even from the moment we're born, we experience loss. We're torn from the warmth of the womb, and we cry. And if we don't cry, it's not normal, right? That's just part of life. We lose our innocence. We lose our loves. We lose our way. Times we may feel like we're losing our faith. We, we will, many of us lose our memory, and ultimately, in the end, we lose our strength. I'm reminded of Jesus who said, if anyone wants to save his life, he must lose it. Life is exile. And exile can actually be a gift. There's a kind of a strange assurance embedded in this letter. I wonder if you noticed it. It's in the subject of the verbs. Uh, the Lord seems to be saying, I am with you. Verses 4 and 14, notice the subject of the verbs. I sent, I drove, I sent, I, some translations say, carried you into exile. They're tempted to think that the Babylonians did this, that these soldiers did this, these armies did this, these enemies did this, and here's the Lord saying, no, actually, they were the proximate cause, but really I'm the agent of this thing. I'm carrying you into and through this season of exile, I'm with you. That's the gift. I wonder if what you were looking for in Jerusalem, Jeremiah is saying, you might just find 
in Babylon. It might just be that you won't find it until you get to Babylon. And I don't know what Babylon is for you, but I know that life is filled with loss. Paul Darcy writes, God comes to you disguised as your life. I like that. And that's a life that's oftentimes filled with struggle and sorrow. Augustine, the great theologian, believed that in his case, God was, quote, strewing the pangs of bitterness all over my lawless pleasures to lead me to yourself, he writes in his confessions. And this seems, in fact, to be the goal. I will let you find me, says the Lord in verse 14. I have carried you into exile just because I love you too much to allow you to live without finding me. I take you on this journey as hard as it oftentimes is with pain mixed in with the beauty and the joy in order for you to find me. And you will find me. I will let you find me, says the Lord, when you seek with your whole heart. So I wonder what it means for us to embrace life as exiles. To like own that. To embrace our vulnerability. To lay a hold of our weakness honestly and authentically. When we do that, we are invited to a cross. We are invited to get past our own illusions about ourselves and to fall into the hands of a gracious God. One who says, my grace is made perfect in your weakness. The gospel calls us to allow God to do for us in Jesus Christ what we cannot do for ourselves. And in that sense, an experience of exile is absolutely essential to life in all of its fullness. Many people say today that exile is an apt motif for the church in America. Uh, things have changed. I don't know if you've noticed in America. The church is no longer in the promised land. So much has been stripped away from us. All that was familiar in the ways in which we connected with our culture. We've lost our place at the center of culture. We've lost a lot of security. We're living in many ways as a vulnerable people. In many ways, like Judah, we have failed as God's people. Our witness has been compromised. And so here we are, Christendom, this marriage, this unhappy at times marriage of Jesus and political power kind of come to an end. And I want to suggest maybe that's a gift. And maybe there's a gift in there for us. After all, God does make this promise for exiles in verse 11. Let's always read it in context. I know the plans I have for you, not to harm you, but for welfare, plans for your future and a hope. It's a promise for exile people. If we share that identity, maybe we share that same calling. And so the question I want to raise with you today is, how are exiles to live? And God gives very practical advice in this letter for people who are embracing their exile identity. And it's very simply this, seek the welfare of the city. Right where you are. Seek the welfare of the city. Build houses, plant gardens. Have grandchildren. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Now, this has got to have been shocking counsel coming from Jerusalem to Babylon. Think of it. 
This city they're in is Babylon. For them, it's like the Death Star. Are you kidding me? We're fighting against these people. We are still at war with Babylon, and you're asking us to contribute to their urban project? No way. These guys are the international icons of oppression. Babylon has been built on bloodshed and slavery. I'm going to build this city. Do you know what the city means? Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel Chapter 4, verse 10, uh, verse 30, brags. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of Babylon, says. Is, this not, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Can you hear the idolatry of humanistic thinking in that place? No, there must be some mistake. Uh, Somehow the courier switched his letter in the bag for something else. God can't be telling us this, and, yes, and yet he is. I have sent you to this place, verses 4 and 5 say, to build this city, Babylon. Now why? And why this city? Let me just take a couple minutes here because it's very important, I think, to know God is building a city. That's what the Bible teaches us. God is building a city. Now, we don't oftentimes think this way. We oftentimes kind of have a suburban um, mentality. I like what Tim Keller says. We're not poor in spirit like Jesus says. We're mostly like middle class in spirit. <laughs> and we think that way about the city. We think, oh my gosh, you know, the city's kind of blighted by crime and overcrowding, by immorality, by corporate greed. And if you can, you want to extract yourself or protect yourself from the city. And in the Bible, it is true that the alienation from God shows up in a kind of urban sociology that is actually quite dehumanizing. And we see this in a string of, of cities from the very first city, which is founded by Cain, the one who murdered his brother. He names the city after his son Enoch. And there's the city of Enoch, and then there's the city of Babel. Uh, there's the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Pithom and Ramses, which are the uh, slavery cities where, uh, in Egypt, uh, Jericho, military fortress, Nineveh, Babylon, then Rome. You know, you get the picture. That's where cities are not glorifying to God. This humanism, this idolatry takes over, and there is violence. But God's purpose will ultimately be fulfilled in a city. God will redeem each and every of these and all cities, and that redemption is depicted at the very end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, the two last chapters of the Bible, with a city. The story begins in a garden, but it ends in a city coming down from heaven, the great city of Jerusalem, the city of, of God. This is our destiny. This is what God is building, a city. Meredith Klein, the great Old Testament scholar in his book Kingdom Prologue writes, the city is not to be regarded as an evil invention of ungodly fallen man. The ultimate goal set before humanity at the very beginning was that human culture should take city form. There should be an urban structuring of our human existence. The cultural mandate, he writes, given at creation was a mandate to build a city. And we oftentimes can't see it in our city, and it's because we're not looking with the eyes of faith. And Abraham, who was the father of faith, looked forward to a city, Hebrews 11.10 tells us, that has its foundations, whose architect and builder are God. God is building a city. 
The United Nations tells us that today, 55% of the world's population lives in cities. That's 4.2 billion people. And it's growing fast. In 1950, it was less than one out of three. In 2050, they expect it'll be more than two out of three people around the world be living in urban centers. Why? Well, because cities draw people for security. We come to the city for security. There are job opportunities, social services, health services, educational resources. And cities tend to create diversity because there's space in cities for minorities, for ethnic minorities, for religious minorities, economic minorities, sexual minorities. Minorities of all kinds can find their people inside a city. So there's a diversity. And, and cities also try to, tend to catalyze culture and innovation. Because when you have diverse people that are together, they start to look at things in different ways. And it excites the imagination. And so uh, there's development that happens in cities. There also tends to be spiritual openness in cities. Because of this uh, different worldviews that come together, there's a, a learning and a seeking. It's a place where God can make himself known. Edward Glazer has written a book recently of the Harvard economist entitled The Triumph of the City. How our greatest invention, meaning the city, makes us richer, smarter, greener, healthier, and happier. And he writes, cities magnify humanity's strengths. I think you could also say cities magnify God's strength in his grace. If people, an exile people, should come into the city bringing empty pockets and their own vulnerability, might they not give witness to the strength of God who is carrying them? Might they not give witness to grace? And here's the gift for our city. God says to an exile community, build. God is building a city here within the city, the city of God. And how can we join him? Well, the answer that Jeremiah offers in this letter is to identify with the city. Identify. Think about that word for a second. I see this in verse 7. The letter says, in this city's welfare, you will find your welfare. See, this city's welfare and your welfare are linked. I want you to identify with the city. I want you to make the city's needs your needs, as though they were your own. I want to make your opportunities the city's opportunities. So that when it goes well for you, it will go well for the city. Identify with the city. Even Babylon, he's saying. Now you can hear this expressed in a slightly different way. This is a biblical principle. In Proverbs chapter 11, Solomon writes, verse 10, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Think about that. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. The reason for that is that the righteous identify with the city. So when they prosper, the whole city's starting to do well. We shouldn't come to our city, to Seattle, in order to prosper ourselves, by ourselves. We should come to the city to prosper ourselves, but with it to prosper the whole city. Verse 11, Proverbs 11, 11 says this, the next couplet. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Through the blessing of the upright. These are the righteous. Now, to bless means to will and to work for the benefit of another. The upright will will and work for the benefit of the city, Solomon 
is saying. So, so the letter calls forth for a, a communities of exiles here in Babylon uh, who would identify with this city. And we see this, by the way, in the book of Daniel. Da- you remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this little circle of friends, and they show up and they're starting to do this. Now, we don't know for a fact that Daniel read this letter that Jeremiah sent. It's a lot of evidence to say, suggest he did because he's in the first wave of exiles that, that come, the brain drain from uh, Jerusalem that comes in 597. Daniel's in that crew. And uh, Daniel um, refers to, in chapter 9, the 70 years, which I said is not actually literally historical. So he seems to be taking that metaphorical 70 years that Jeremiah puts in the letter and representing it back. Seems like he's reading Jeremiah, and he does what Jeremiah says to do. He and his friends, they take Babylonian names. They study, in an academic context, Babylonian culture. They take appointments in the government of Nebuchadnezzar and begin to serve the civic good. They work for the common good of this city and they pray and catch Daniel on his knees in this city for this city. So apparently it happened in some way there. It's happened in many other places. And I want to give you one other illustration that's so beautiful and it's familiar to us, but we don't oftentimes think of this way. Think of a, of a vulnerable community that changed the culture of a city. What comes to my mind is the Harlem Renaissance. In the early 1920s in New York City, there were communities of people coming from the South, mostly fleeing the racism of Jim Crow laws, seeking refuge in urban populations like Chicago and, in this case, New York City. They were marginalized. They were people who brought empty pockets and their own vulnerability, and they took root in Harlem. And they built houses and they built culture as they did. You've heard of some of the names, many others that that you haven't heard of. But um, uh, James Weldon Johnson, Paul Robeson, Lady Holiday, Lady Day, Billie Holiday, Alan Leroy Locke, Marcus Garvey, Zora Neale Hurston, Duke Ellington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Louis Armstrong, Langston Hughes. They gave us and the world jazz, blues, poetry, a theater, fiction, philosophy, politics. What a lot of people don't know is it grew out of the black church. There was a deep gospel-centered spirituality at work in the Harlem Renaissance. And it changed the world. Let me just give you one illustration of this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was part of the resistance in Nazi Germany, came to New York City in 1930 for a year of study at Union Theological Seminary And he was very unimpressed with uh, American Christianity. Even at the seminary, he he, he said, Union has no theology. He said, there's no theology here, he wrote back to a friend. Thank you very much, Dietrich. Until he he, uh, was invited by a classmate named Albert Fisher. Albert Fisher was an African-American student at Union, and he took Dietrich to his church, Abyssinia Baptist Church, which was the sort of the spiritual center of the Harlem Renaissance. And Bonhoeffer wouldn't miss a Sunday after that. He, he said, I, I heard the gospel for the first time from a Negro, in his words. And it changed him. Uh, Reggie Williams, in a fascinating article that's become a book, I haven't read the book, but the article is interesting, talked about how we wouldn't have known Dietrich Bonhoeffer as Dietrich Bonhoeffer if it hadn't been for his experience with the Harlem Renaissance, this community. Because prior to coming to 
into that community, he did not have a theology that could resist the encroaching hegemony of the, uh, of the totalitarian uh, Nazi philosophy. In, in other words, um, he had what Williams calls a theology of glory. And you can hear some of the nationalism in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's preaching in Spain just prior to coming to New York City. But when he comes to New York City, William argues uh, that he comes into contact with a tradition that recognized Jesus as active and present in the daily lives of marginalized people, identifying with suffering and shame as a redemptive presence in oppression. And he's introduced to a theology of the cross, a theology of weakness, of Jesus saying, I'm with and for exiles of every type. And it changes Dietrich Bonhoeffer and it changes history. This is grace lived out in community in a way that builds culture in the heart of a city. Seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare is the word for peace. Shalom, it means justice. Dr. King taught us that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. Shalom is the world the way it's meant to be. Scott Peck wrote in The Road Less Travel, wellness is not the absence of disease, but an organism's ability to heal itself. Isn't that true? You're whole and healthy because of your immune system, not because you've stayed away from any infection. And the body of Christ, we are meant to be that immune system in the, in the city. We're meant to bring peace, shalom, wholeness, and justice to the city. So here's the practice this week. Let me give you something practical. Uh, it's to pray alongside the city. Prayer. I, I, I'm calling us to prayer because that's what Jeremiah is calling this community to. He says, I want you to seek the peace of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, if you want an acronym to remember, it's PAC. Make a PAC with the city. Identify with the city. P-A-C. Pray alongside the city. Pray on its behalf. And the English word behalf comes from the Old English, by his side. To, pr to pray on someone's behalf is to pray alongside of them. Uh, the Hebrew word that's used here very much means, in, in some contexts, substitution. To pray in the place of, to put yourself in the shoes of. To pray as though you were somebody who needed peace in the city uh, with those who are marginalized, with those who are vulnerable, with those who are hurting, with those who need justice. In your imagination, as you bend your knee and pray to God, pretend you were that person and pray on their behalf. By the way, we see Daniel do this in chapter 9. He, pray, he confesses sin on behalf of Jerusalem, sin that he hasn't himself committed, but vicariously he brings that before the Lord. You bring the needs of your city vicariously before the Lord in the name of Jesus this week. Pray alongside the city. Think of somebody, maybe it's a student who's experiencing anxiety, depression, particularly as we come into midterms here. Maybe it's someone you read about in the news who's homeless or who's experienced violence. Maybe it's a neighbor and you know their story or a little bit of it around divorce or the sickness of a child. Actually come before the Lord as though you were them in their name, offering what they need to Jesus. As we get ready for our vision launch on March 10th, I continue to be excited and I, I think about our city a lot, Seattle. One of our members, David Sarju, was serving in the mayor's office not long ago and he wrote this fascinating essay and he said, our primary civic disease, and he's talking about Seattle, our primary civic disease is the lack of connection. I believe that. 
And what's the solution? He argues articulately, they're catalyzing more connected communities. We need to catalyze more connected communities as a city. He's writing to Seattle. And brothers and sisters, that's what we do. That's what UPC has done. Every time we gather with one another and forming small groups in our neighborhoods, we're catalyzing more connected communities for the sake of our neighbors and our city. And we do this because we have a God who identifies with this city, who says, it's my beloved place, my beloved people, my beloved culture. We have a Savior who was an exile. You ever thought about that? Jesus was an exile at his birth the point of a sword. He fled to Egypt with his family. He was in exile on the cross. Apostles' Creed said he suffered and went, descended into hell. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was in exile because of the failure of God's people. He took on the judgment that we deserve for our faithfulness. He's so identified with you and me that if we identify with him, We will never be exiles ourselves. We will always have our home with God. And that's good news. And by the way, finally, let me say, do you know who believed that good news first? It was the cities. The word pagan originally meant country person, paganus, country person. But it came to mean what we mean by it because the church grew so quickly in early uh, centuries in the church, in the cities, not in the countryside. So that to be a country person was to not yet be a believer. By AD 300, 90% of the countryside was pagan, but 50% of the urban populations in the Roman Empire were Christians. 50% in the cities. Brothers and sisters, our city, Seattle, is waiting. Let's pray. Dear God, we're not here by accident. We're not here because we chose to go to school here or to live here, move here, or even because our parents had, we were born here. We are here because you've put us here. You have carried us here. You have sent us here. We are on assignment here. And we can't do it alone, but together with your beautiful Holy Spirit, we have a gift to give this city. And so we pray for it, and we pray for a commissioning of ourselves to engage it. Let us build a city within the city, your city, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.